Thank you, guys. Thank you to our worship team. So, so good. Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to see you all. Um, I know some have been traveling. Some are still traveling. Coming back from vacations is good to, to see everyone. It's fun to see posts and things that you're, you're doing. And, and uh, man, isn't it summertime good times? It's good that the sun finally came out, man. That was, like, scary for a minute. I thought we, like, were living in Seattle or something. It was just not okay. So grateful for, uh, uh, I think it's the sun shining out there, and, and uh, that we can be together in God's presence this morning. And we are continuing on in our uh, Psalms of Ascents, our Summer in the Psalms series. That's a, a lot of S's that I just said. Um, but... Uh, we're in Psalm 128 this morning, so if you want to get prepared and open your Bibles to Psalm 128, and just to give you sort of a, um, we're, we're beyond halfway through, I think we're on the ninth Psalm, eighth or the ninth, not ninth, yeah, and there's 15 of them total, and um, these Psalms, as we've uh, mentioned before in the background, that these were Psalms that would be dear to the hearts of the children of Israel, and you'll remember that three times a year, as families, they would travel from wherever they were. To, uh, um, to Jerusalem. And no matter where they were, Jerusalem was always up high. It was always an ascent to Jerusalem. And they weren't just going back to, um, to see a city. They were going into the temple. They were going into a place where they knew that they were going to connect with God. And, um, and they would do it through these feasts that followed the agricultural season. And so these three feasts would give them opportunity each time to remember the faithfulness of God, to remember their commitment to God. It would give them opportunity to confess and, and rid themselves of their sins, to have their, their sins atoned for through sacrifice. So I was thinking about that, that rhythm or that routine that they had. And, um, and these, to me, would be like uh, welcomed interruptions, Right. How many of you love to get interrupted? You know, like, we're doing our thing, man. We're, like, doing our thing, and someone comes in and interrupts it. But, but as followers of God, we have to realize that it's not our thing, right? That we have signed up. We have chosen to give ourselves fully to him. And so God has built in already and shows within this rhythm of worship for the children of Israel that there were times where you think you're chugging along, and it's like, nope, stop and take a really long journey. I always think it's funny, I know I've said this before, but we love camping and you love getting ready for trips and stuff like that, but you wonder how history will interpret that stuff, right? Like these, this, this Western culture that had perfectly fine homes and they were really nice and comfortable. And these families would get together and they would pack all this stuff into a car or a trailer that they could tow somewhere and they would go into the middle of, of nowhere and they would set it all up for a week and then hang out there. And like, isn't this good times? Then they would put it all back in and go back and put it back in their perfectly normal house, right? Isn't that funny, like, to think of it that way? I don't know. I think it's funny. Lighten up, people. I mean, come on. No, just kidding. But, but that to say that, that, that it takes effort, right? It would take effort each time for these families and provisions that they would have to make in order to plan to go to worship, to be interrupted from their day-to-day, to be interrupted from their life of, of farming and, and taking care of crops and, and making sure that the ends were, were met. And so um, this is where we find ourselves within these psalms, and it's important to remember this, and it's important to think about this as we're reading them. Um, whenever we read Scripture, thank God you can open up your Bible any day of the week and read it, and God can speak to you right where you're at. He can share with you right in this moment something that's impactful for your life. But as you study scripture, it is important to go, what's the original context? What were these readers hearing when they, when they either wrote it or when they were read it? 
And so um, we're talking about a, a culture that was agrarian. We're talking about a culture that grew their crops, that, that was um, also constantly under the threat of someone taking what was theirs. And so it's not uncommon that we hear within these psalms these repeated themes, and maybe you're following it, but the themes are pretty much like the basics for life. Um, you can trust God no matter what. Come on, everybody, let's say that. You can trust God no matter what. I know we would say that, we would put that as a bumper sticker, we would, we would tell our friend that no matter what they're going through, but that is a theme within these psalms and it is a truth. And you can trust God no matter what, that God is the builder of all things, God is the protector of what he builds. And so these themes run throughout, but a, a theme that has surfaced and kind of continues to thread through these psalms is also a theme about family. And it's no wonder that it would be a theme about family because we know from, from history it was only the, the men that were required to go to these worship gatherings three times per year, but the whole families would go together. And so you just think like these are, are times for realignment. Um, anybody ever drive a car with poor alignment? Right? It's, it, it just, it doesn't like, I mean, it could be dangerous, but it's just annoying. Like you're always correcting when you're driving. And I have an, an old Volkswagen and, and, you know, it just has about that much play in the wheel. So you just kind of bump down the road and, and do that. And, and, you know, if you take your hands off the wheel, you're going to be in another lane. And, and so, but if you have a, a modern vehicle that starts every morning, you, um, you, you know that when it's a little bit off, you, you, it just doesn't feel right and you know it's unsafe. And I think sometimes as the people of God, that we can get used to our sloppy wheel. We can get used to being pulled one direction and we make these little corrections. But what God wants to do for us and through his word week after week is to bring us back into alignment. Would you agree? You have a world that's pulling you and it's pulling your alignment to the right or to the left. And when you come into these settings, you're like, nope, let's get back into the true north of what scripture teaches. And these Psalms do that for these young believers. And so um, there isn't, I'm not going to try to over teach what's there. I want to hopefully just unpack to you what's very simple. Uh, I like what Alistair Begg says, the, the main things are the plain things, right? That they're plain in scripture. These themes of trusting God these themes of honoring him, these themes of valuing family. And this today's theme is woven all throughout scripture. And it's called the fear of the Lord, right? Everybody say the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. Right, I just do that to see if you'll actually do it. And then when you do it every time, I'm like, yes. So, no, but the fear of the Lord, it's this theme throughout scripture that as you, if you read that at face value, if you read or if you hear the fear of the Lord, um, through just simple terms of what we would understand, it would mean that we would be afraid of God, right? And, and I got to tell you that that's not so far off from the definition of the fear of the Lord. If you've, have, how many of you have read C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis. If you haven't, um, you should really read C.S. Lewis. Okay. No. But C.S. Lewis, or we're familiar with like the Chronicles of Narnia and the, and the different parts of the sagas of his books. And, um, and the way that he describes Aslan is, um, I forget if it's Lucy or one of them is asking when they see Aslan, who is a representative of, a representation of God, this big, beautiful big lion that roars very loudly and very strong. And the question is, um, is Aslan safe? You remember this? Is Aslan safe? And they go, no, he's not safe. You know, it's like, are you kidding me? He's a, he's a lion, a warrior lion, but he is good. And I think that, like, and I, and I hope to handle this topic of the fear of the Lord um, wisely, 
And, and I think we're so quick, and if you've, if you've heard teachings about the fear of the Lord before, we're so quick to say, it doesn't mean you're afraid of God. But I think for our culture, and I think as we read the Bible, you should probably be a little bit afraid of God. I'm not talking afraid of God like he's going to zap you, like I was told, you know, as a little kid. Like, not by my parents. I had good parents. Mom, where are you at? They think, um, it was some crazy Sunday school teacher that told me that. No, I'm kidding. No, but, but, but you know, you, you don't want that kind of fear hanging over your shoulders like, like you, God's always out to get you. But you do, as a human, have to admit to the fact that as Jesus said, don't be afraid of the one that can just kill you. Be, be afraid of the one that can kill your, you and your soul and, you know, and send you to hell forever. Like, I know this is seemingly a little bit like hellfire and damnation for a moment, but at the, the point is this. God is to be feared. He's not safe. He's good. The God who created heaven and earth, the God that will judge all things. I think we should probably as a culture be a little bit less familiar with him, a little bit yet less shaping him into our character of what we want him to be, a little less approaching him like he was a vending machine, like as long as we put in the right money that we should get out what we need from him. He is God. He's God. And so, but in that, the, the, the proper definition, and, and here's where it gets tricky for us as, as followers of Jesus, as as believers of God, is that our God who created heaven and earth, the God who we should be a little bit like in awe of, not a little bit, but very much in awe of, he's also our father. He also loves us with an everlasting love. He also loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And so we live like many parts of our Christian life. We live in tension, right? We live in this tension between Abba, Father, which if you were to, to walk around in the streets of Jerusalem today and a young child would see his dad off in the distance and wants to get his dad's attention, what is a young child going to say? Abba. It means daddy, right? It's an affectionate term. And through Jesus, we get to call the God of heaven, who we should be a little bit afraid of, daddy, Abba. Do you get the tension now? So it's a tough topic. We don't want to stray to one side and just say, I don't be afraid of him. We don't want to stray to the other side and and just say, ah, you create it, you know, you can get whatever you want from him. He is God. And so the psalmist brings us back into alignment of who God is, of of what it means to have the fear of the Lord. And so um, let me read the psalm to you. And then I want to read some other portions of scripture, um, just a bunch of them. I'll rapid fire through several psalms and proverbs and hopefully get this theme of the fear of the Lord circulating in your brain. Before I read it, though, just to give a little bit of balance, I think a good analogy or a good understanding of what the fear of the Lord is 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 like places like the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls. Have you been to these places? And and you get to the edge of those places. Like you dangle your toes over the the cliff, um, you know, at, uh, at the Grand Canyon. Not that you could, but let's say that you could. And you see how deep and vast it is. Is that safe? You can feel it in your, like, like why am I doing this right now? Like, it's just like, <gasps> whoa. <gasps> it's an awe. But it's so good. It's so good. The power of it is so good. 
You know, you, you, um, you get near water that's moving really rapidly and fast and the, the vastness of that or, you know, looking at seeing like a falls, whether it's Niagara Falls or other places, doesn't feel safe. It feels dangerous, but it's good. And there's an awe and a respect that some weird part of you is like, I wonder what would happen if I jumped over right now, right? You're like, ooh, don't think that way. You know, and you're kind of like doing this, and, but your like body wants to go forward. Like, do you, do you, is, am I weird or is anybody like this? That's the tension. You're like, yeah, dude, you are weird, but yes, we do that. So, um, that's the tension. Awe and respect for something that is so much more powerful than you, but drawn to it like such a crazy beauty. Like, how could I get closer to that? How could I feel that power even more? And I think that that's kind of the understanding of the fear of the Lord. And so we read Psalm 128, starting in verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. And in the ESV, there's an exclamation point. Uh, I think everything in Scripture is important, even the punctuation. Who walks in his ways. Verse 2 says, You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed. Some of your versions use the word happy. And happy is an important word. It's uh, something that everybody's looking for. It says that you shall be happy and it'll be well with you or blessed and it'll be well with you. And then it begins to say in detail what that might look like. Your, your wife will be a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall, be the man, um, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord and repeats that idea. And then those last two verses is like a blessing pronounced. The Lord bless you from Zion. The very place they were heading to that place to worship. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace, or not just like peace, like peace, but peace meaning the shalom of God. Everything is as it should be. Peace be upon Israel. And so the fear of the Lord is the thing that, that the scripture seems to be telling us will cause us to gain all the things that everybody's looking for. You know, that everybody's seeing. And, and I'll get into this a little bit more, hopefully, as, as we get through this message. But as we get through it, like it's this thing we have to do together. Like, oh, we're going to get through it, you guys. Come on, hang on. Um, but as we walk through this scripture, uh, the psalmist is painting the picture. The psalmist is painting the picture of the good life for that particular moment, right? And so... Um, but listen to what it requires to get to where everybody wants to get. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. If you look at, at a few of these passages, um, we'll connect the dots. Proverbs 8, um, 12 through 14. Um, wisdom is like personified as this woman throughout the, the book of Proverbs. And it says, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. Verse 13 says, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. And I have counsel and sound wisdom and I have insight and I have strength. The line that stands out to me in terms of beginning the definition biblically of the fear of man is, is a fear of the Lord, excuse me, is the fear of the Lord is a hatred for evil. I heard one commentator 
say that, that as you begin to understand the fear of the Lord, you have to understand how God feels about sin. If you begin to understand how God feels about sin, you'll begin to understand the fear of the Lord. I think that um, we live in a, in a culture that doesn't like the word sin. We live in a culture that, that tends to get us to not even think or talk about anything that's potentially evil or wicked or whatever else, that we would rename it or reshape it into something else. But the God who created heaven and earth, the God who is awe and respect that we should definitely be given, giving to him, he has a strong feeling about sin and evil. And that feeling that is spoken in scripture is a hatred for evil. It's the beginning, uh, the beginning's part is connecting to the heart of God is connecting to how he feels about sin. I think the opposite of that, and sometimes it's helpful to understand the opposite, to understand a definition. If God has like a hatred for evil, the, the opposite of that, if we're not fearing the Lord, would be like the embracing of sin or sinfulness. We would be fully comfortable with it. Like we'd be fully comfortable and even not only comfortable with sin, what the Bible determines as sin, but we would, we would also celebrate it, right? We're not just comfortable, we celebrate it. Is this ring like true to the moment at all like celebrating sinfulness it's disrespect to god and his ways and his commands it's dishonoring god it's it's defiling his worship these are all things that are are without throughout the big story of the bible that have real real implications Some of these other verses, I, I told you I'd rapid fire through a few of them to help give you a definition. The Bible says, these are things the Bible says about the fear of the Lord. It says in, um, in Job, verse 28, 28, he said to the man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and those who practice it have a good understanding and praise endures forever. Proverbs 9.10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 1.7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 10.27 The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. 14.26 says, the fear of the Lord, um, one in, excuse me, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have refuge. Proverbs 14.27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. If you begin to look into the New Testament, again, on this topic of the fear of the Lord, um, you'll find this word in, in Luke and, um, and also in Acts, same author. And he uses a term called God-fearers, right? God-fearers were Gentiles who decided to follow God. They converted to Judaism. And so these God-fearers were people, that was, like, that was their term. That's how they were, would be identified. They weren't this Greek or this person, but these were God-fearers. So the observation for me in all this is um, this psalm, uh, it, it shows us how to fear the Lord in obedience to God. And, and in it, 
and, and, and hopefully you'll see this in just a moment, but it shows us that as we fear God, as we have an awe and respect for him, as we're like drawn close to him, but also realize, whoa, he's God, like we are to the cliff or like we are to the waterfall. It shows us a way to live in this present evil age. And raise your hand if you could say this is a present evil age. Okay? And so I want to be very, very careful and tell you that this is not a prescriptive promise to say, if you fear God, you're going to get an awesome wife who gives you a bunch of kids, who your, your little olive shoots are going to be amazing, right? That's what it says about your kids. And, um, and it's just like all health, wealth, and prosperity. That is a dangerous doctrine. What the Bible teaches is the fear of the Lord gives you the outcome that God desires for your life. That, that when you submit yourself to God, you submit to the best life possible here on the earth. And God gives you a very wonderful promise that this life is but a vapor. Right? And some of us are experiencing that like, wow, where's the time gone? But he has for us in eternity a great reward. It's different than this place. And I know you know this stuff because it's called preaching to the choir, right? We know this, that you know that you are yet, a, you're just a pilgrim that's passing through. You're not a pilgrim that's passing through going, man, I can't wait to get out of here. You know, some, some people use the analogy that this world, we look, we, if, we're, if we're not careful, we could look at it as a public restroom, right? You just go in there, you do what you got to do, you wash your hands and you get on out, right? It's gross, I know, but you'll remember it. Um, so, so. But that's not what this world is. You're passing through with purpose. These people were pilgrims, not tourists. They were passing through with purpose. And as you're passing through this world, through these moments of life that are incredibly difficult, you can't forget the fear of the Lord because the fear of the Lord brings God's outcome. So I have this little saying in my mind so often that I remember that if you do things God's way, you get God's results. And remember that picture that we had of the character of God, that be careful because we sometimes go, I want to tell God what his results will be because I'm a good boy. I've been really good. So I put that quarter in the vending machine and I, pu I push E7 because that means that my Twix is going to come out, right? <laughs> no, you do things God's way and you can trust him. He is faithful. He's the builder. He's the protector. The, the themes of the Psalms, I I don't have to push any buttons. I just trust him. And I realize he's good. And I submit to what he has for my life. Is this making any sense at all? Yes. Okay. So the observation is this, that this is a present evil age, that it's a present evil age we live in as a result of the sinful fall. You remember what happened back in the Garden of Eden? And in that sinful fall, it's interesting as we read this psalm and we match it to what was the result of the fall or the curse that happened. What is some of the, the parts of the curse? If you were to read Genesis chapter 3, you realize that part of that curse is like really child, childbearing is very difficult. You realize that part of that curse is kind of enmity between husbands and wives. You realize that part of that curse is a curse on the soil that for an agricultural society that they're farming in dust now. And that the toil of their hands is really difficult and they're planting something, and thorns and thistles come out. This is, the point of that is to say that sin is incredibly destructive. 
It's incredibly destructive. And that's why if we want to understand the fear of the Lord, we have to go, okay, sin is a big deal to God. He hates it. Not because he's so like, I, don't, I, I want everybody to be perfect. He hates it because the destruction that comes as a result of it. Your sin is not your personal sin. You know this, right? Your sin, my sin, the things that we choose to do willfully in disrespect and disobedience to God has a ripple effect on the people around you and generations to come. That's why God hates it. It's not because he's mean. It's because he is love. And he wants to give us the best life possible. That's why we ought to fear him. And so we realize the fear of the Lord brings a reversal to the curse. And the reversal to the curse that we read in this psalm is now all of a sudden, those who fear the Lord have what? meaningful work that we read the psalmist says you shall eat the fruit of your labor of your hands and you shall be blessed and happy and all is with you i'm telling you right now the farmer that has to farm dust if he can if he can pick up the soil and it just goes like that that is not a happy day but the farmer who can place the seed in the soil and the water comes and it rises to a crop that he not only can go wow it's beautiful how many of you garden you get a little taste of that, right? So it's like, whoa, do tomatoes, man. If you don't garden, do tomatoes. <laughs> tomatoes and peppers, right? Like the hot ones. They'll, they'll withstand like a nuclear holocaust. They just like everything just grows. You're like, whoa. But, but the, the point is this. There's something right and good about picking that tomato and, and cutting it. It's just like better. And you eat the fruit of your own labor. Think of that on the grand scale for the farmer that... That it's a contrast to other times in the Bible where not fearing the Lord and judgment comes. In fact, if you want to get an example, let's look at Judges chapter 6, verse 1. You can turn there if you like, or, or, or you don't have to. Um, but uh, anyways, <laughs> let me just read it. Um, Judges 6, 1. It says this, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. Because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. And listen to this. And whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. And they would encamp against them. And what would they do? They would devour the produce of the land. Oh. Could you imagine the hard work that you, you do and then somebody comes and takes all that you had nurtured and all that you'd grown? That was, that was a picture. So the person reading the Psalms is like, whoa, the good life is fearing God and actually eating the fruit of what you've planted. This means that the curse in the fear of the Lord begins to take a reversal. And that reversal of the curse you find thematically throughout the New Testament in Jesus that he came to bring a kingdom that's much different than the kingdom of this world. And so you see meaningful work. The second thing that you see a picture of in this psalm is that your wife will be a fruitful vine within your house and your children will be like olive shoots around your table. And behold, you shall be blessed. This picture of a blessed life. And I want to just take a, maybe a side detour here for a moment. So um, buckle up. But... <laughs> I think it's important to understand the historical moment. For a, a young Jewish man, if he was not married by a certain point and didn't have children by a certain point, there would be something wrong with him. 
So the context of this Old Testament passage for a specific Jewish people was, okay, um, if you really want to be blessed, you need to have a wife and you need to have kids. And so let's be very careful when we read it through the lenses of the New Testament, not to find it like a prescriptive thing to say, oh, if I'm a Christian, then that all automatically means I get a wife and I get kids. And that's what God wants. Because I am fearing the Lord, for, for crying out loud. <laughs> Sorry. It's not what the scripture says. In full counsel. is Yes, you're reading it for yourself right here, but in full counsel. Let me take you through to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the concept of being like single and consecrated to the Lord and singleness wasn't like a thing necessarily for um, these people followers. But then in comes Jesus. I heard one person say, sometimes we think like singleness is like JV and married is like varsity. It couldn't be any more contrary to what scripture teaches. If, if, if that was the case, then Jesus would be JV. If, if, if marriage completes us and kids make us even better, what about Jesus, the one who taught us how to be perfectly human? Have you ever thought about this stuff? Does it make you uncomfortable? I, I, I think it's important to talk about in Scripture, especially if the message to a young generation is like, yes, follow Jesus, and then really, hopefully, not hopefully, but part of that promise is you're going to find a really godly wife, and you're going to have super cute kids, you're going to post like crazy. Your posts are going to be epic. If that's the message we believe, then what happens when, when that narrative falls apart? Then our concept of God begins to get rocked a little bit, and our concept of Scripture and how we declare promises of God. And, and listen, God bless you, child. <laughs> no, no, you don't have to leave. I was being silly. <laughs> right on. Um, the, the problem that I think that we can have is if we, if we take and we sort of uh, one, take one historical moment and apply it to a, another, we're going to have a wrong interpretation of Scripture. So that we have Jesus who is single and yet complete. We have the Apostle Paul who's this interesting figure as we read him in the New Testament. It's, it's almost like in, if you read 1 Corinthians 13, he's having like this little rant about marriage. He's like, okay, if you got to do it, then do it this way. Don't do it that way. Right? And if you, if you continue, it's in the seventh chapter. I'm not going to go into it because I'll do a teaching on a teaching and then I'll bore you. But on, on, in the seventh chapter, he says this thing about like this gift of singleness. Now, some of you who are single are going, I hope I don't have that gift. <laughs> and listen, if you had that gift, you would know it. I have met some people who have that gift. And there's something about them that is so complete in Christ. There's something so pure and holy. And they are certainly not JV. They are like special varsity, like amazing. This is just anecdotal. I mean, I don't find scripture for this. But the, those that I know that would say they have the gift of singleness aren't longing for a, a spouse to complete them. But they're exceptional at some field. They're ex usually exceptional in art or they're exceptional in some area of ministry. Or there's something that God has, has deposited upon them. And there's this holy singleness that they have, that they have devoted themselves fully to the gift that God has put within them and the gift that they bring to the body of Christ. And it's really a beautiful thing. And so I just, I just want to just deposit that. 
Secondly, I want to say that if, if you are like, oh, I hope I don't have that gift. If there's a desire in your heart, don't, don't, don't deny that desire. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desire of your heart. This is, this is part of what scripture says. And so if you, if you desire to be married, don't just pick the first person that checks some of the boxes. You know, allow the fear of the Lord to lead that journey into finding the one that God has for you to become one with, that the two become one flesh. You know, and as I look around the room and there are couples who have been married in the last couple of years and, you know, you see that, 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 that I, my favorite part of premarital counseling is, okay, what's your story? Like, how did you come together? And finding the way that God brings these lives together when the fear of the Lord is present. So understand these, these parts there's a, a calling to singleness. There's a calling to marriage. Now, here's where it can get very tender. When you read that your wife will be a fruitful vine, the clear interpretation of fruitful vine is that your wife will be a producer of children. Okay, so now what do you do in a culture, in a time, in a moment where some in this room, some of your friends, some of your, your family members have had to go through the ache and the turmoil of infertility? This is a, oh, a painful thing. And when you, when you prescribe scripture to and go, yeah, but Psalm 128 says, if you're fearing the Lord, then you should be having babies. This is also something that we have to take a step back and go, is that what scripture is teaching within the big picture? Or is scripture teaching the fruitfulness of family? Is it teaching us that when we fear the Lord and when we do things God's way, we get God's results? And God has different things in mind for different people. And so let's be very, 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 very careful at the vending machine concept of promises of God. There are promises of God that are yes and amen, and you declare those things all day long. But there are others that you have to leave very open-handedly and try to understand the big picture of what God is saying. So it would be easy to kind of brush over this because there are tender issues. But man, I think it is really important, really important for an, an entire church community to have a very biblical perspective on singleness, on family, and even on something like difficult, like infertility. Does that make sense? So then let's go through and, and understand what God is saying, like within the good life, the good life that he promises if you're interpreting it, and sometimes I like to say, let's take a 10,000-foot view of what he's saying in Scripture. The big picture view is for the Israelite, for the Jewish person, in that moment, he painted the picture of the good life. Now, for us, as 21st century followers of Jesus, living in a Western culture with different dynamics, we begin to ask the question, what is the good life that God has for us? And the good life that God has for us begins in the fear of the Lord, understanding what God believes about sin, how he feels about it, and what we have submitted to. The last part of this psalm, and this is kind of where I'm going to draw it to a conclusion, the last part of this psalm is this prayer of blessing. And this blessed life or this happy life. So again, you know, the, the early ancient Hebrew, the blessed life looked like this. Now I'm going to mess you up a little bit because you get into the New Testament and Jesus begins to talk about the blessed life. And the life that Jesus talks about as a blessed life looks a little bit different. You familiar with Matthew chapter 5? Let's look at Matthew chapter 5. And as you're turning there, it says in this, in this 
prayer of blessing, or this five and six, it says, the Lord bless you from Zion. I, I missed this whole part about kids, sorry. I, don't go there yet. This is an important part. The olive shoot. So it says that your wife will be fruitful, okay? And I think that a New Testament application to that could be the miracle of childbirth. It could also be the, the, the harmony that happens within the home. So the fruitfulness of a husband and wife relationship, the, fruit, the fruitfulness of the fruit of the Spirit abiding in that home. This is, comes as a result of the fear of the Lord. Your children being like olive shoots. This is an important thing. That's why I went back to it. It is a common theme throughout Scripture that children are to be valued. Children are to be valued. Olive oil came from the olive shoot, right? It came from the olive tree. The olive tree is prized in, in the Middle East. It's prized in this land. And, and what's interesting about this olive tree is it grows really fast, right? Doesn't sound like parents talking about their kids. They grow them up so fast. These olive trees grow up fast. They, they, they reach about four, age four. The tree begins to then grow slower and start to mature, and then years later begins to produce this fruit. This, this olive tree is like a luxury item for the, the children of Israel. It's what they um, fill their oil lamps with, and it bring, produces light. It's what um, gets put on food, and it makes the food tasty. It's what, what kings and priests are anointed with you know, in order to sanctify them. And so it's, it's knowing the, the beauty of this item, it's really interesting that Scripture would use that to compare how children are to be seen and, and what if we walk in the fear of the Lord, how we'll view children. I know that some of you have, have seen the recent film about um, child trafficking. We've had some conversations and human trafficking and the horrors of, of slavery and how it relates to children and the devaluing of children throughout the globe. This is an example of the fear of the Lord. How do you think God feels about that? And so the awe of God on that subject is to go, ooh. And scripture brings us back to the value that he has placed upon children. And the blessing that God gives in, in homes where there are um, children of natural birth, where there are children of adoption, but God wants to bring the solitary together in a family. These psalms are realigning us with these values that come through the fear of the Lord. But then when we get into what the blessed life looks like, it's the life that God has in mind for us. When we do things God's way, we get God's results. We begin to step back and go, I thought it was going to happen this way, but yet God intended it to happen in another way. And let's read, uh, I, I put you to Matthew 5. And let's read that. Matthew 5. This is now Jesus describing for his followers what the blessed life looks like. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the, pure, are the peacemakers, they'll be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil and false things on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your great reward is in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
The blessed life that Jesus talks about is, is this life that is completely turned upside down from the life of the world that you live in around you. That the, the results of sin, the destructive nature of what sin's done to the world, that you can live in a way that is pleasing to God, that is, that is, is happy in the Lord because you have Jesus, because you have the atonement for the sins that had come to destroy you, the reversal of that garden impact on your life. You have that in Christ. And so I think the message of this psalm and the realignment of this psalm is to, to do this one simple thing, to take all of our hopes and dreams, the, the picture that we might have, might have painted of what we thought our life was, and the vending machine that we often go to to say, hey, we're doing it, why aren't you doing this back for me? Is to erasing that and saying, God, I, I want to fear you. I want to follow you. And I want to trust that the outcome of my fearing and following you is the good life. Does this make sense? And so I place my hopes and dreams. I place it all before you. I lay before you what I think that I want from my life, and I exchange it for what you have for me. And so with that, I want to invite our worship team to come back. And, and, and I hope that, that this makes some sense to you today. It's a lot to chew on. It's a simple psalm that could be taught in a very lighthearted way that might produce like, yeah, he's going to do it if I fear him. And yes, he is going to do it if you fear him. He's going to do exactly what he intends to do in your life. And what he intends to do in your life is good, because he is good. I'm going to read it in its entirety to you one more time. And I want to say this. In fact, I was having this conversation with Krisha earlier today. Just because I said some of the things that I said about this good life, you know, that God, um, in, in the area of family, if your desire is, is for marriage, don't stop praying for that spouse and the family around you and believing God for that. If your desire is for a child, God can open wombs. God does that. We have all things that we take, and I would never want to take away the wonder of a miracle. Do you believe God can do a miracle? Anytime, anyway. But the miracle is up to him. As we open our lives and our hearts and we just say, God, whatever you desire for my life, I want to live the good life. I want to live the blessed life according to what Jesus teaches as a follower of Christ. And here's what it says. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Now the picture of the good life. You'll eat the fruit and the labor of your hands. You'll be blessed and it'll be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. This is the pronunciation of blessing. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see prosperity of Jerusalem and all the days of your life. May your children's children, or may you see your children's children. May peace be upon you. And I invite you to stand with us and we're gonna shift our, our gaze to, to Jesus in this place of worship. I know Ben wrote this beautiful song about um, giving yourself wholly to, to God. And this, there's this one point in the song, it's, it's um, shape my dreams, shape my hopes, something to that effect. God's put these things in your lives, dreams of family, dreams of, of a future, dreams of retirement, dreams of what that like, you know, as I was preparing this message, I felt just convicted to the core that we often have a mental picture of what that one day is gonna look like. 
when I don't have all these responsibilities, when I, when I can sit on a beach somewhere, when I can sit on a porch and hold hands with my wife like this in a rocking chair and, and just, you know, just see this beauty. Like, those are all wonderful pictures. But are we willing to go, God, I present to you my mental picture of what I think the good life is in exchange for the blessed life in you? And I begin to feel really convicted because I have a few things. One of them involves a boat, I'm not going to lie. And, and I was like, God, I just... Oh, all of that in exchange for what you determine is the good life because that's what you created me for. And I can trust you. You always provide. You always protect. You're building. You're doing something beyond what I can see with these eyes. Let's just give ourselves wholly to him as we shift gears now. your blessing over every stage represented in this room. Father, I pray your blessing over young people who are now beginning to shape mental pictures and understanding of what the good life would look like in the years to come, whether it's the spouse that you have for them or the career. And I pray that you would not take those desires away, but you would shape them to to match and mirror the fear of the Lord. To walk in a, in a trust with understanding that you, when we submit to you and we submit our futures to you, you give us the good life on your terms and that's the life we want. Father, I pray for those that are in the marriage stage and the parenting stage and the desire for children stage and the, the home design, purchasing a home and, and those things that represent our good life in this moment. 
And I pray blessing over them. I pray the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. I pray miraculous provision to be able to live in places they could never dream of because you opened the door. I pray for fruitful homes, God, where marriages are strong, where husbands love wives as Christ loved the church and, and wives lean into the beauty of that leadership that they find in their husband's arms. I pray that their, the dwelling places there they are would be sanctuaries. I bless them, God. I bless their, their homes with children that are running around like little olive shoots. Children that come from the, the natural womb, children that come through adoption, Lord, however you desire it. Let that good life be for these young families. God, I pray for those that are raising teenagers and in these years, the, the work of discipleship and loving and, and, and nurturing. God, I pray grace and strength and, and laughter and joy in homes, Lord. I pray for connections between fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and daughters and dads and sons and moms. Bless them richly, God. Father, I pray for those in that, that mentoring grandparent stage or just before it or wherever they find themselves, God, that as the vision begins to be about what's next, that what's next is not a, a mental picture that's from our hearts, but one that's from yours, that you would lead and guide through the fear of the Lord and that the good life would be theirs. And on and on and to, to those that are, are in the golden years of their lives just saying, God, still I want to be used by you pray that they would experience the blessing of God, the happiness that comes through the fear of the Lord. Realign our views and values to, to be in alignment with your word and bless your people like crazy, God. I pray you would pour out your spirit upon them. You would bless them, God. You would bless them to the point where they can't even understand why they're so blessed. And that blessing wouldn't be a reflection of material things, but it would be the 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 closeness and relationship with you and with the people around them and the purpose that they have in their life. They would be meaningful work, eating the fruit that they've planted, the toil of their hands. Bless them, God. Bless them, bless them, bless them. And we thank you for these things. We thank you in the name of Jesus. And everybody say, amen and amen. Amen. God bless you.
Yeah. I- 